Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 71 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled Summary of the Book of Revelation, Part 6, Three Kingdoms. Our teacher is Alan Smith. We do welcome you here as we continue in our teaching on uh, wrapping up the book of Revelation. It's been 2,000 years since it's been written, so I think if it takes me a year to wrap it up, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I still think I'm doing the short version. So uh, as we begin uh, with this teaching this morning, it is a... Um, I wanted to share a thought with you, as I usually do to begin with, to get our get us motivated perhaps a little bit or get our to get in the groove of trying to comprehend what the Holy Spirit is saying to each one of us. And this is, of course, a teaching as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And I've tried to convey over these months that the position of the believer, is to we're always working from the position of the coming of Christ could be at any moment. And then that sets us up spiritually, psychologically, mentally, with how we should act and how we um, counteract the culture that we're in. I just uh, shot up a picture there. Can anybody tell me who that is? That is Einstein. And, and is who? That's right, Brian Cohn. Looks just like him, as, as uh, Ed says. Brian dropped his head. Uh, so uh, he has an IQ of 160, which is uh, higher than I can count, so that proves I don't have it. And uh, has an IQ of 160. He's considered uh, one of the most brilliant men of our time. I'm going to put a plug in for the women right here. Y'all better say amen. Can anybody tell me who that is? Huh? Uh, yes. You remember her name? Her IQ is 220. That's just kind of amazing, is it not? Uh, I, I'm going to give you use one of her quotes this morning. Uh, to acquire knowledge, one must study. But to acquire wisdom, one must observe. Her name is Marilyn Vos Savant. And uh, uh, I don't know. I didn't, uh, you know, they called someone as you were, as you, what you said there was, is that where you get the word savant from, somebody that's a genius or whatever. If this was a coincidence, it's a good one, isn't it? Uh, that's her last name. I'm really not sure that the two are the same. It would seem to me that it would be, and I was going to research that some, but I didn't. Uh, but Marilyn Voss Savant is her name, IQ of 220. She actually was in the uh, Book of World Records of the uh, the highest IQ. I think there was one other guy they think it was higher, but he didn't live but into his 40s, he kind of destructed. Uh, but there, I'm not sure on that one. But anyway, she's considered uh, definitely the female with the highest IQ. And I guess it would be a male chauvinist that would say, but there has to be a male higher. I don't know. <laughs> but we, 
I was going to put Einstein up to beside her and he lost. So we'll, we'll drop that one. So, uh, but she was always asked, she was a, uh, or is, still is, she's alive. She's 75 years old. And she is a writer for the New York Post. I think she does a column and has for 30 years or 40 or something. But she was always, her aspirations was to be a writer. But all of these different technologies and all of these universities and everybody always grabbed trying to get her in their lane. And she refused. She would not get in anybody's lane. And she always argued that there's more to life than knowledge. And she said, you know, I have knowledge, but I have to have wisdom because I'm good at observing. And she, that was her basic argument right there is that statement with academia. And, uh, but she wrote this column, I think it was a New York Post, and it was titled Ask Maryland. And uh, people from all over the world, from all places, points of academia, would ask her all these incredible questions and she would answer them. And uh, she was famous for uh, the three door question. Perhaps you've heard of this, you know, it's, it, it compared it to uh, uh, not the price is right, but maybe it is the price. No, I don't remember. One of those game shows you had three doors and there was, let's make a deal. That's one it was. Let's make a deal. They compared when this came on the scene, she was asked a question, was compared to let's make a deal. Never what the guy's, the host name of that show was. They named it uh, this question that they she was presented with. And there's also been a movie uh, that this type scene was put into the movie. Uh, it was this genius young man. It was math, I think it was. This professor presented. It was a movie about this professor that would get the smartest kids in the classroom and they were so good with math and he kind of had a ring that they'd go to Las Vegas and, and, and beat, I forget the name of the movie. But there's a famous uh, scene in that movie, but it comes from this. And uh, so she was sent this uh, question of the uh, three doors uh, in the contestant picked door number one and then the announcer, I forget the guy's name, said that, uh, okay, I'm going to reveal to you door number three. And it was a billy goat or something. And uh, there was a car behind one of the door, three doors. Well, so they picked one, opened three, and it was a, a goat. And so then he turned around and said, okay, now you can change uh, your door, one or two, if you'd like to. And... Uh, of course, now it, it would appear that you got a 50-50 chance. I mean, you've got two doors left. Okay, I've got a 50-50 chance, but it's actually a 62 point something percent greater chance if you pick door two. Well, all these mathematicians all over there, she said that it would, you're a greater odds with, with door two. And this was kind of a famous thing back in that day. And all these mathematicians all over the globe and everybody sent in to the to her, no, you, I'm sorry, Marilyn, you missed this one, and all this sort of stuff. And so they actually had mathematicians that would get together three or four and try to work out the equation. Anyway, it came out she was right. 
you have a greater percentage to switch it and go to two. And if you don't understand that, uh, you can go read her notes. So, uh, but it turns out that uh, uh, she thought she was wrong right one time, but she was right. And so she, she was tremendously, and, and so she used wisdom in some of her equation. And that was part of her point. And when she used weight wisdom, it gave her the equation and it helped her work it out. She was known for that. Uh, but academia was always somewhat upset with her because she wouldn't join. She was so intellectual, she wouldn't join one particular group. And uh, I've watched a lot of interviews that people have done with her and she totally downplays her intellectual side. And, but she can carry on a normal conversation with them and just burn them. You know, <laughs> just, she can do more by accident. Not even trying, it didn't look like. And them trying to carry on a normal conversation with her. But she was just so full of uh, knowledge. But uh, her conclusion was at the end of all of that knowledge, it took, uh, it took another thing called uh, observation. And then, then they asked her, okay, if that's key... Uh, once, and what intrigued me about this was, of course, our faith in Scripture. And uh, so much of what a Christian and a believer does is by observation. And she, uh, from academia, brought uh, the understanding, hey, this is a huge deal here by observation. And you can take some people who've never been to school, but yet their wisdom is incredible. And uh, that was some of the... Uh, examples she would give and she had all of her uh, her things in a row there on proving how it was true in her arguments even though she was constantly challenged on that because most of the arguments were that the acquired knowledge is what equals wisdom and she totally uh, she was in on a, an interview with David Letterman one time and uh, I watched that one and uh, he was trying, David Letterman, you know, thinks he's smart, but I'm, you know, and, and he, he kept saying, well, I know I'm smarter than you and all this sort of stuff. And the more he did it, the more he showed his ignorance. But uh, she was proving, and even with him, so she started talking to him like he talked to her, and he didn't even catch it. Yeah. And so she outplayed him at his own game. Because through observation, and then, you know, she went on, she said, listen, and he got frustrated, threw all of his papers away. She said, listen, listen, the only thing I did was observed you, and then I started using your same argument. That's all that I did. She said, that's my point. <laughs> you know, and, and it was kind of a very interesting, but a little kind of a famous interview that she had on David Letterman that people used and cited in her argument. Now, my point in all of this is observation is a, one of the greatest tools of a prophetic person. It's observation. And also it lends more weight to why a Christian, how we live our life, means everything because the world's observing. The, the world's watching at our actions and our reactions. And uh, it's something to consider. Of course, she would argue, the smartest lady that we know of in the world as far as IQ, she would argue that wisdom is greater than knowledge. But she also made a distinction between the two. 
And she said it sure helped to have some knowledge to go with wisdom, especially if you're in debate, <laughs> you know. But yet, so, so it gives us this, uh, that once again, it gives us this realization and concepts of distinctions. Distinctions. It also helps to settle my nerves because I've told Trevor this before. I, I feel betrayed at 70 years old that the smart people have let me down because I thought that the smart people were going to be the guardians of the truth. So therefore, one of my laziness uh, confessions is one reason I was so lazy academically is because I felt assured that the smart people were going to preserve and protect the truth. And if I needed any, I'd just hire me a smart person and let them do the truth. But now I'm in trouble. The smart people's letting me down. Male's not a male. Female's not a female. Four plus four is not eight. And, and uh, you can divide one male and it'll equal uh, with nothing and equals two. One male, one female. You get, the smart people's let me down. So as prophetic people, I'm submitting to you just a thought, trying to aggravate your thinking a little bit if I can, on that how wisdom is very, very important. And wisdom is gained uh, by observation, and I think observation is done through the Spirit, the best observation. Observation is what hopefully gives us understanding and the ability to see truth. All right? That's, so God's created us in this way to, and you've heard me say this uh, before, that we've been created in the image of God. And that image is the ability to remember. Uh, I'm not going to reteach that for sure, but we have the ability to remember, to observe, to see, and to remember what we see. The problem is we've got history in our minds and our spirits that can distort what we see. One of uh, her arguments was in her learning to observe was to not let her intellect get in the way of her observation. Isn't that, a, isn't that something? And she was saying how the mind can distort, you can try to accumulate evidence and then to have an observation to equal a truth, which I'm not saying we don't do that. Of course we do that. But she said part of her problem was if she allowed her intellect to affect her observing truth. And, uh, and so we know that, uh, and she would cite this also, whether she's a believer or not, I don't know, it sounded like a lot, like perhaps she was. But she would say that uh, there's different things that distorts truth, uh, pride being one of them. And uh, it was obvious that she tried to stay in total humility with her, the rate of intellect that she had because she believed that pride would distort observation. And so uh, we know that pride can do that. And we know that uh, we can be too hard on ourselves because of fast past failures, and that will mess with our, with our observation. Uh, when we come to the Word of God, there's not anybody in here. We all can muster up enough pride, uh, you know, to try to motivate us or move us, but for the most part, everybody in here 
feel, we all feel like we come up short. Uh, we all feel very unworthy of sitting here saying we're the children of God and we're hanging on to the hope that, that God does forgive us of all sin, so therefore we're sitting here. But it's hard for us to cross over that hump of self-condemnation into walking into the truth that we are children of God, totally forgiven. And that, that's a tough one. It, it really is. It's a tough one. Uh, here comes the rain. That's good. And uh, so as we're seeing the, this, uh, you say, well, I don't know what's this got to do with the book of Revelation. I'm not really sure yet, but give me enough time and I'll make it work. What I'm wanting us to see is observation, even when approaching the book of Revelation, applying it to end times, our observation is very, very important. What you're seeing in the world is very, very... We can see what's going on in the world. And then after we see it, we do not deny it. Then it's okay for us to have hope with what we see happening in the world. We bring hope, of course, to the equation. That's what us Christians are. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. And it's not there again. The world has hope in itself. We have hope in God. There's a difference. Let me, let me share this with you as we continue. Depression is the uh, product of losing hope, and usually it's in yourself and others. That's what equals depression. We lose hope. So there's not but one way to get through depression. I've been there and I've done it. I understand it. I can be depressed uh, rather quickly. And uh, if I turn my, uh, if I let myself idle too much, I usually head towards the depressed state. But most depression um, comes out of the thought patterns of how I've been, how others or things aren't going my way. It can be induced by myself or others. The things are not going my way. So therefore, how do I get out of that depressed state? It's not but one thing that I can do, and that's think of God more and myself less. Now, the world is going to let you down. People is going to let you down. That is a depressing thought. Understand that. But at the same time, with that depressing thought, the way... The mental gymnastic, if you will, to come out of depression is to think of yourself less. Now, I did not say think less of yourself. I said think of yourself less. Because when we're in a servant mode, when we're in a Christian mode of servant, of thinking about others more than ourself, the great benefit of that is no depression. Can you hear me? It's, it's just no depression. Because, so depression comes out of motivation gone wrong. All right, now I'm going to get into that here just in a second. Motivation gone wrong. Now there's another thing that Marilyn said here. She believes that personal motivation is the key to acquiring knowledge and wisdom. 
we can go to the scriptures here in Romans 15, 13, you know it. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now she said, she believes that personal motivation is the key to acquiring knowledge and wisdom. So as we're sitting in here today and those that are watching online, it's obvious that you were motivated to be here. Something motivated you to be here. Now there's others that's not here or even watching online that are not motivated enough to watch online or be here or even read their Bibles or some are laying in beds right now and maybe a few even watching online that are totally depressed. They can't motivate themselves enough to get out of the bed. And depression's a real thing. And it can go chronic. A depression can get bigger than you. Can you hear me? Depression weighs a thousand pounds, but it gets to a thousand pounds because you add five pounds daily. How do I get out of depression? Depression is, is accumulated by adding five pounds daily of bad thinking. It adds up into a weight. When it gets a weight, it's a thousand pounds. It goes chronic. Then it's bigger than you and then takes on a life of itself. And it's demonic. It's demonic. The reason it's demonic is it will kill you. Proof text. It'll kill you. Another proof text is sin. Wages of sin is death. So depression is a huge thing now. It's hard to talk about end time information and people not get depressed. When we're supposed to be, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul is fully aware of the end times. But we are to be a people that gain wisdom through observation. A lot of people deal with the world that we're living in by saying, I'm just not going to look at it. I totally get that. I am one of those. It's hard for me to watch a movie because... I come up with a conclusion first 15 minutes of the movie and it's always bad. Just so happens about all movies today end up that way. But nonetheless, that's my natural uh, projection. So as we see ourselves and motive, I want us to, uh, I hope you, you, I'm really praying that you can make the connection on how important motivation is. Now, now you can, I can stand up here and try to motivate you all day long and I can't do it. Motor, uh, let me read you the definition here. I think I looked it up right before I came up here. If it's still on my phone, here it is. I'll give you the de definition of motivation. The reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. Read it again. Motivation. The reason or the reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. 
So I submit, and, and now with, with Marilyn Savant, she said that the key to acquiring knowledge and wisdom was motivation. So what is the enemy after? He's after our motivation. People today can't get motivated to watch online at a church service on Sundays or come to church or read their Bibles. or Are they huge sinners? That's not the problem. The problem is there's no motivation. Now I can give you a motivational talk and kick you up for about 15 minutes, but that's all it lasts. True motivation comes out of the truth of this book. Now the disconnect is if we believe the book or not. We might know it, but don't believe it. You've maybe heard me say this before. I know more about this book than that I believe that's in this book. I'm working on believing more than I know. So it's not a matter of knowledge, is it? Uh, a lot of people, uh, for instance, we pray for the sick to be healed or people to be saved. People to be healed emotionally, spiritually, physically. We're kind of the whole, uh, the whole deal of healing. We kind of like to hit it all. But it does help to be able to observe the kingdom of God breaking into this natural world. Because that's an observation. Right? Wisdom comes through observation. Motivation comes through observing the truth. Or observation. I'll carry it that far. Christian God motivation would be through truth, but the world has motivations as their truth, but not God's truth. So as we're seeing this, and when you approach the book of Revelation, a lot of people say, I don't understand it. Well, it's not, you don't approach it necessarily with linear understanding. It's a book to be observed more than understood. And you'll gain wisdom through the observation of the truth. Well, when you read the Word of God, you can memorize verses, which is good. But when you observe the verse and it becomes who you act out, then it's your truth. It's really a difficult task, perhaps, to help the human brain uh, make a... can differentiate between intellect and observation or intellect and wisdom. That's perhaps a, but yet the prophetic voice and the prophetic heart operates off of wisdom. Knowledge is good. It helps. But wisdom comes, when you run into wisdom, you've run into the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the giver of all this truth that comes into a form of wisdom. Now, uh, I hope that makes a little bit of sense uh, as we move forward. Now let's look at a short summary of the book again. Starting with chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, you know my, this is on the intellectual side. <laughs> this is a, a way to look at it through knowledge. I try to put it in a simplistic form. 
so that the wisdom can come forth. You got seven churches, seven seals, you got seven trumpets, and then you got what we call the seven vials. Some Bibles call it bowls of, of the wrath of God. Then I put up here that little black area there between seal number six and seven. You see that? That's what we call a parenthetical pause. I've taught you about that. Then we have another one right before the seventh uh, trumpet. Then we got another one right before uh, it is finished, as we can see. As you look at, we're going to look perhaps at the, some of the seven seals even today. And as we're looking at these seven seals, we'll look and see how many of them have already happened. Now, when we stopped last week, we were on this slide of the three kingdoms. Uh, there was a prophetic word uh, that I sent out um, uh, to the elders and a few pastors, if you will uh, give me a second here. Uh, this is in, uh, I was a little distracted by that rain, but the reason was is because I had this prophetic word. I sent it out last night to different pastors and, and ministries and to our elders here at this church. The prophetic word is, I hear much thunder, but it is a sound of heaven. There is a shift happening in the spirit. The prayers of old are preparing to come forth as revival rain. What you have been waiting for is upon you. The thunder is proof of the coming rain. Have no fear of the thunder, for it is prophetic of the future. Any accusations or unhealthy thoughts are the thunders, but they are not the coming rain. Focus on the rain and not the thunder. The thunder will force you higher, for this is not about a prophet, true or false, but about the coming rain and the outpouring of the Spirit. A prophet declares the will of God and declares the rain is coming. The thunder is to be expected. So therefore, rejoice at the sound and find your victory in knowing that God's appearing is preceded first by a mighty sound. The heart of the prophet turns the thunder into a glorious announcement of the coming rain. Amen. And so that was, a, so when I heard that rain uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, is the Lord bringing me a personal witness? I don't know. It was a pretty good rain, wasn't it? And uh, then Brian Cohn, he came up to me and uh, he received that uh, word. And uh, he said, Alan, you know, thunder is created when two fronts collide. And I think he said he brought it up in prayer this morning, perhaps. And that two fronts collide, and when they have that collision, it creates uh, electricity and a boom and, and all of that. Um, he said, I think you gave an example like rubbing a balloon on your pants or something. It creates this like static electricity. And very good uh, uh, revelation uh, that he told me this morning. And if you want a condensed view, I would see him and ask him. It's very good. Uh, but it was this collision that I think that I was hearing and seeing in this prophetic word. But we've got these three kingdoms. Uh, this is where we were last uh, week. 
one is the kingdom of God, which is a supernatural realm. The other one's the kingdom of this world, which is a natural realm. And then the other one's the kingdom of Satan, which is an unnatural realm. Uh, you can watch last week's to get more information on that. But I was showing how that's kind of three levels. We're living in the natural realm. And then you have an unnatural realm and you have a supernatural realm. So you can see by that that the Satan himself is always trying to pull us into some into behavior that's unnatural. A man with a man, woman with a woman, the Bible says that's unnatural behavior as an example. So do you some people say, well, Alan, I don't think that's demonically inspired or whatever. Well, you don't have to wonder it's unnatural, so therefore it's in the unnatural uh, realm. Then you got the natural realm. I think I said, Jeff and I were talking a few weeks back, and we said we just long for the days we have natural sin to talk about and, and not all this unnatural. It's like unnatural sin. It's just, it's just it's like the gates of hell is just, uh, we're, they're, they're not supposed to prevail against us, but somebody's opened them, it looks like to me. And then you got the supernatural realm, which is what we're guilty of. We just are persuaded that someplace here on this planet, you need to come together as a people and reach for the supernatural realm. That's all. Are, are we guilty of, of touching it all the time? Of course not. But are we guilty of reaching for it all the time? Of course, yes. We are. We're constantly going to reach for that because the unnatural is grabbing at you. Trust me, it is, it is really grabbing for us. And it's grabbing for our minds and for our understanding. And it, uh, it's amazing to me how when, when we observe the world and we observe all of this unnatural stuff that's going on in the world today, how that not only our own government, but individuals that I used to think highly of, are trying to make the unnatural behavior as normal. Make no mistake about it, if you do that, you're an agent of hell. You're trying to make the government of hell, you're trying to make the behavior of hell in an unnatural realm, you're trying to bring it into the natural world and make it normal. Now, let me, let me say this to you. The supernatural realm, we're trying to bring it into this natural realm, make it normal, aren't we? Well, we've got to keep it correct in our spirits is that, yes, we're to call for the unnatural realm, but we need to understand that observation speaks louder than words. As people are, are observing you and your life, that speaks loud. You and your life speaks loud. I'm not saying that we need to have a religious spirit about everything. I'm saying we need to have the, the character of Christ about everything so that it speaks. And that in itself is what, how many verses I quote does not bring the kingdom to the earth? Because uh, they're already here. You know? And I do think we should speak them and pray them and all of that. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying your life shouts. And your voice is dim. So as we're seeing these three collisions there, you're going to have thunder. These realms are colliding with each other. And so when we speak truth as a church, 
it's going to create a friction that causes thunder. So we're to expect the thunder. Matter of fact, you basically have to have thunder to get the rain. In other words, somebody's got to speak truth and cause some thunder. So this ideology of we're going to be so sweet that we get people to Jesus with no conflict is a lie. It's not true. Now, if that would work, okay, I'd be all for it. But that's the lie that a lot of churches today are falling for. We need to be sweet enough that people will come to Christ. The love of Christ and the sweetness of somebody is two different things. Have you noticed? My daddy, when he whipped me, he said, it hurts me worse than it does you. I never did get that. <laughs> Says he loved me. But I know that was true because he was applying truth to my life in correction. So we got to check our definitions. Anytime a human starts bringing def changing God's definition of love and of truth, we always go into a more of a um, um, empathy. We go in, we, we all have empathy for people that are hurting and dying and in trouble and emotionally distraught, spiritually distraught. We all have empathy for that. We do. But empathy is a motivator and that's it. Empathy is not the truth. It's a motivator. And there again, we've got to make the distinction of what's actually going on. I have empathy for this person in this situation. That's wonderful. Now give them the truth. For it will set them free. And we think we're going to hurt them. Let me help you with that question. You are. You are. I've had, I don't know how many surgeries in the last 10 years. Uh, I can go back 30 years and had two-thirds of this lung taken out. Uh, and the recovery time was, I don't know, three months, four, had a knee replaced five years ago, and I'm still wondering about it, but nonetheless, it hurt. But it was good for me. Point being, if you're going to do better, it tends to be painful. So we're not looking to be wiser, have more truth. We're not looking to grow without it being painful. And I, that is a hard one to sell, is it not? It's a hard one to sell, but it's the truth. You can look at nature, look in the natural realm all the way around and, uh, I need to lose about 15 more pounds, and it hurts to do it. I've lost 10. Thought it was going to kill me. Don't like it yet. Still don't like it. So there's a lot of things that's good for me that I don't like. Matter of fact, most things that are good for me I don't like. So I have to come to terms with what's good for me and what's selfish unto me. I have to come to terms with that. And I've noticed the more disciplined I am in my body, the more disciplined I am in my spirit. It's amazing how it works. And so discipline is a walk of the Christian. Is discipline is the lifestyle, if you will, 
of a believer. And we all hate it. It all it brings us pain, one form or the other. And uh, it's just painful to walk with Christ. And that's the reason we've said, and you've heard it said before, that uh, I came to Jesus for Him to help me with my problems, to give Him my old ones, to get a whole set of new ones. Because He's continually, continually, I mean, I'm 70 years old, and it's amazing when the Holy Spirit convicts me of a behavior that I have, it's like Alan. I, my surprise is, I really thought I'd be over it by now. I'm just honest with you. I thought, where did that? That one's 20 years old. And uh, I'll, uh, the, my, the wisdom that I gained from that was, I used to love to smoke cigarettes from the time I was 17 to I was 20. When I stopped smoking cigarettes, I was between three and four packs a day. And of course, I'm a dairy farmer. You start milking at three o'clock in the morning. So it's amazing how so many cigarettes you can smoke between that and, and, and dark. And I loved cigarettes. I just, I just did. And uh, I made a deal with God one day, a certain crisis, chaotic situation. I said, God, I'm going to give you, I'll promise you I'll never smoke another cigarette if you'll Make tomorrow like it never happened. Uh, what happened today like tomorrow like it never happened. I've made I've made two deals like that with God. He took me up on both of them, and I'm not going to do a third. And so the next day is like it hadn't even happened. I thought I was losing my mind. Ever it was like ten people involved in it. Nobody had any recollection. I even kind of brought it up. What are you talking about? God had really erased the thing. Guess what? I hadn't, I hadn't smoked cigarettes since. Lightened to kill me. God helped me zero. I think he made it worse on purpose. It was terrible. Over a dumb cigarette. It was terrible. I could have eaten a pack six months later. Honestly, I'm not kidding. It was terrible. I'm like, God, this is not funny. You're enjoying this, and you're torturing me through it. And I'm telling you what. And basically the reason I had, didn't ever smoke another one is not because of my fear of God. It's because I couldn't go through that again. I knew it would be worse. But my, my point is that when God, God did not help me quit. It was terrible. It was painful. But I'd made a commitment to him, and I knew I wouldn't break it, and he knew I wouldn't either. And it wasn't out of my great obedience. It was out of my great fear of God. I feared God that much, and I still do. But my point was this. About five years after that, maybe eight, I got up one morning, and I could have eaten two packs of cigarettes. I'm like, where did this come from? I thought it was beyond this. And of course I didn't, but I still had to go through these pains again. And then it went on to about 10 years. And one day I was somewhere, I was at a restaurant somewhere, and I got a certain aroma of the food in the restaurant. And I don't know about those of you, anybody that used to smoke, but the best cigarette was right after you ate. I see a bunch of heads going up and down, okay? And... I walked in that restaurant and all of a sudden, uh, it was terrible. 
Now that's happened to me four or five times since I've been set free of that addiction and that demon that had a hold of my life. But do you know that demon still comes to me every now and then to test me one more time. And it's just as strong as the strongest day when he left. And I don't, I know the Lord allows it. But, I'm, but when I've had these times of thinking, I thought I was beyond this, you know. And, and it's like the Lord saying, no, I'm just re-upping your commitment. You know, does anybody else have a witness of, of, of such as that? And so as we're walking through this thing of being more like Christ, as we're walking through this life of, of having greater purpose, when we're tempted again and we don't yield... We start building, and I taught this at the first of the year, but we start building, and this is what happens in the book of Revelation. We start building a momentum. Momentum in the natural world creates supernaturalness or unnaturalness. It starts creating this momentum. So as a group of believers of us coming in here together, this... And, and to me, the more the merrier, because what happens, we're, we're building a momentum. We start building a spiritual momentum. And it should be, you can come in here and have a bad week, but you catch the spiritual momentum of the room, of being with believers. Because this day in which we're living, in all of this observation of what's really happening, the Christian walk can be accomplished. But guess what? It's a lot easier if we got each other. Just trust me. It's a lot easier if we got each other. And if you're looking at our failures to the point that it rubs you so wrong that it creates great thunder, you're in a selfish place. You're welcome. You're in a selfish place. You're in a selfish place. Because you're looking at how everybody else's behavior affects me. Instead of seeing yourself as an agent to bring the kingdom of God to the room. We already know that this room is full of a bunch of misfit, broken toys. We already know that. And we don't do everything just right. But we have one commitment and that is to Christ. This is what happens in the book of Revelation. Start off with the seven churches. And then you're going to see what happens to those that keep their commitment through incredible chaos. But yet they keep their commitment. The greater the chaos, the greater the reward. Some of you in this room have really and are really being tried being tried incredibly with uh, sickness, disease, relationships, perhaps even depression, thoughts of suicide. All of those things, believe it or not, is in this room right here. And we could go on and on, just like you could. But when we come into this room and we have this particular hope that I showed you a minute ago, this hope that's in God. All of a sudden, I don't care how depressed you are or how depressing everything is, all of a sudden, 
Hope in God changes everything. Can somebody hear me? To have hope in God changes everything. People that don't have hope in God, read the book of Revelation and see what happens. But to those that have hope in God, you have an opportunity to experience and observe the supernatural realm of God. The supernaturalness of God. As we move on with it, man believes the world is getting better, but God says it will become increasingly worse. Yeah, I don't know what you want to do with it, but there it is. Man says peace among the good nations is closed through NATO. God says there will be wars and rumors of wars. The more peace NATO says is going to happen, the more wars it started. Anybody noticed? Do you want to talk about NATO? All right, let's move on. Man believes it will win the battle against disease and famine. God says there is to be fearful judgments of disease, famine, and hardship. That's what it says. That's what the book says. So that being the case, where will you direct? Where will you direct your life this day? We'll start here next week. He's going to try to start here today. There was a door opened in heaven. That's Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So here's John. He's looking into that supernatural realm. And in our Bibles, it gives us a view of what it looks like. Not only that, everyone in this room can experience that even now. And I say that upon the authority of this book. Everybody in this room can experience this open door of heaven while you're still in this life on this planet now, according to God's Word. And I choose to believe God's Word, and I'll show it to you if I'll get on with it and quit talking and get to teaching. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. I ask and pray, O oh God, if there's anything that I've said is not of you, it'd fall to the ground. But if anything that I've said is of you and your spirit, I pray that it'll be quickened to the hearts of your people. Lord Jesus, it is our mandate to be able to look through that open door. You have mandated us in these last days to see into the heavenlies, to call it to the earth. Lord, we're already convinced if hell can come from the unnatural into the natural, well, how much more can the supernatural come into the natural? Lord Jesus, let this place and our lives be an open heaven. Be with us as we worship you this morning. Let us lift up your name in such a way that you could glance this way and smile say, that crowd of people love me. They trust me. I think I'll visit with them today. Thank you for the rain. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.